So we are in the book of Joshua. It's part four. Part four begins right now of our study through the book of Joshua. Remember the theme of this story. It's a part two. This story is a sequel to the events of the Exodus, yes. To the events of the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch, yes. Where we see in part one of the story, God redeeming his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. Here in the book of Joshua, the sequel, the part two, he gives them land, he gives them rest. That's what this is about. Beyond the battlefields of Joshua, this book is seeing the promises of God fulfilled. The promises made to Abraham, their ancestor, to give them land, to give them rest. That's your introduction. And so we begin in part four, in a story that's probably very familiar to you. The story of Rahab. Joshua, he sends two spies out. It's very similar to years earlier when he was sent out as one of the spies. Now he is sending spies out. And my hope today is that perhaps you see something in this story that you've never seen before. I know it's a a popular story. That's my hope, that's my prayer for us, is that we see something that maybe we've never seen before. So I'm going to read a few verses. We're going to talk about the implication of it. Chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two, two men secretly from Shittim and spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told of the king of Jericho, we're not, we're not sure how it was told or how he found out, but he found out somehow. Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab. Once again, not sure what, how he found this information out, but he got a tip. He sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went, but pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them, On the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords, which would have been the logical direction they would have had, back toward the camps of Joshua. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. But before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction we'll stop there story we're familiar with probably familiar with somewhat maybe King finds out, doesn't say how he found out, sends his men, Rahab, straight up lies about knowing their identity, about knowing where they went. In fact, she 
lies several times and tells them that they left, they hadn't left, and they went in a direction that they didn't go. And then she lets it be known to the spies that everyone there at Jericho is in great fear. And they've heard what the Lord has done, the God of Israel. They've heard what, he, what he's done. And she references the story of the crossing of the Red Sea back in Exodus chapter 14. And once again, a story you're probably familiar with. The people flee Egypt. They have the Egyptians at their back. God parts the sea. They cross on dry land. The Egyptians pursue. God brings the waters down upon the Egyptians. She said, we've, we've heard that story. And that scares us. I don't know if you ever thought that story is scary. That's pretty scary for the people in Jericho. They're afraid. And then she references these two other stories. Sihon and Og, the Amorite kings. We've heard what you've done to them. Less familiar story found in Numbers 21.21. I'll paraphrase it. Flashback. Moses is alive here in Numbers 21. Israel sends messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites. They essentially say, listen, uh, King Sihon, we want to know, is it okay if we, if we use your highway? Can, can we jump on 460? We, we don't mean any harm. We won't go stop at Walmart. We won't stop at Sheets. Like, we're not going to go into the vineyards. We won't go anywhere. We're not going to even stop and get water at a well. We just want to use the road. That's it. He says, no. And then after he says no, he makes the worst decision in his life. And he decides to engage them militarily. And it goes very, very poorly for him. For him. And then later on, in, Exodus, excuse me, in Numbers 21, Og, the other Amorite king, makes another tragic mistake. Goes against the Israelites in battle. And it goes very poorly for him. The people of Jericho are afraid. They've heard these stories. Like, for us... For the Israelites, these stories are amazing, right? These stories remind them of the faithfulness of God, the power of God, the supremacy of God. But for those who are not part of them, for those who are not with them, it is a fearful, terrifying thing. Okay? It's terrifying to think that their lives may come to an end in days, weeks, or months. They're scared. But perhaps the most interesting part of this story is the ethical implications that we see with Rahab. Ethical implications I'm sure you've considered before. In fact, oftentimes when we talk about sinning, specifically lying, oftentimes we base those moments in which we say it's permissible to lie on this story. You think of the Jews during the Holocaust, the Gestapo coming to doors, searching them out, and and people hiding them to save their lives, much in the same way Rahab. And so we'd say, yeah, that's okay. But beyond that, maybe we haven't considered, at least I hadn't up until this week, all the implications of this story, as well as the biblical implications And we need to understand all the implications because otherwise we can make some very, very incorrect applications. Not just for sinning, specifically for lying. I would say not just for lying, but for sinning. 
And so when we think of the ethical implications that have been examined by men way smarter than me in detail, much uh, more than we have time for, uh, they are very confusing. But what I would like to is I'd like to look at three of the ethical implications of this story. And I'll throw the titles up on the screen. The first one I want us to look at is what's called Conflicting Absolutes. This is also known as the lesser of two evils. Both of these views will take a, a perspective, and then at the, at the end, maybe you can figure out whether you're on team one, two, or three, essentially, what, which, which perspective you like. I'll hold my opinion to the end. But in conflicting absolutes, the idea is this. Sometimes there are situations in life in which we're faced with two or more absolute principles that are very, very clear in Scripture. But we find them in conflict. In, in such instances when there is no recourse in the situation but to sin, what do we do? Well, in conflicting absolutes, otherwise known as the lesser of two evils, we would argue, this position would argue, that the Christian's obligation is to commit the lesser of the two sins and then to repent of it. It's still a sin, but you do the lesser sin and then you repent of it. So Rahab is faced with the situation. Do I lie? Tell the truth? Or do I save the life of the spies? We have absolutes that are conflicting, so she chooses the less evil. She chooses the lesser sin, you might say. Martin Luther was apparently a, a big advocate of this position. He is quoted often by saying this, If you are a preacher of grace, then preach a true grace and not a fictitious grace. Be a sinner and sin boldly. You probably wouldn't expect to hear that from a pastor. Be a sinner and sin boldly, Luther says, but believe and rejoice in Christ more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, over death, over the world. Conflicting absolutes. I think we understand that. So, second position when it comes to the ethical implications of the situation with Rahab is what's known as graded absolutism. Graded absolutism. This gets really interesting. For in graded absolutism, there's an argument and understanding that absolutes are graded. Okay? Graded. Top to bottom. High to low. That there are certain absolutes that are more significant, that are more important, that we assign a higher value to. Therefore, when one finds themselves in the situation like Rahab, the goal is to pick the higher grade. The goal is to pick the greater good, the higher norm, and the individual is exempt from the lower norm. It's similar, yet different, than the first position. Rahab's faced with this situation. Does she preserve the life of the spies, or does she tell the truth? Okay? Telling the truth is important. Preserving life is important. Preserving life is more important, we would say. Therefore, she lies, but it's not a sin. She's exempt from that in a situation in which the absolutes conflict, so long as she picks the higher grade. I think it's also important as we examine these, because, and I am by no means a philosopher at all, but that we think, okay, what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about that? Because many of these might sound good based on logic. That makes sense, or that's common sense. 
Remember what the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 55. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. Who can comprehend the mind of God? So it's important in all of these that we're, okay, are we really looking through this through a biblical lens or just a common sense lens? And keep that in mind. Okay, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about this? The first one is, I think, pretty clear because they're still saying, yes, it's a sin. She needs to repent. But in this one, she apparently is exempt. So what's the biblical basis for that? in this graded absolutes in which some values are more important than others. Because if you've grown up in the church, you've heard it said more than once, all sin is sin. Someone should put that on a bumper sticker. All sin is sin. How biblical is that statement? Let's look. In the 19th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus is taken before Pilate, and he says something I think you'll find very interesting. In the 11th verse, he says, Jesus answered him, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, of course. You would have no authority over me, Pilate. You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, Pilate... He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Hang on, that can't be right. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Speaking of Caiaphas, the high priest. I remember reading that verse and was like, wait a second. That's not what I was told growing up. All sin is sin. And yet in John chapter 19, verse 11... He flat out tells Pilate that Caiaphas has the greater sin for delivering him over. Is all sin, is all sin, sin? All sin is sin if you understand that all sin is sin. If that statement means all sin is rebellion against God, yes. But are there greater sins? Well, you tell me. I'm inclined to agree with Jesus, because if he says I want to agree with him, I'm inclined to agree with him and says, yes, there are some sins which are greater or heavier. Once again, it's so important to read our Bibles and know what it says. You'd be surprised the things that maybe you grew up believing that aren't actually in the Bible, or that, I don't know, Jesus says the opposite, such as this. But that's talking about sins. This position talks about graded absolutes, about some values being placed above others. I don't know about that. Well, Jesus apparently does, so that's good for us. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, these are spices, you give these things and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You guys are jokes. Paraphrase. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. I think there's at least some case to be made for biblical, excuse me, great absolutism based on what the Bible says here, based on what Jesus' statement, based on our understanding that there are lesser sins and greater sins, based on there are greater values. Now the challenge of this is beyond the statements that I just read, all we have is principles. I don't have a list of the top 20, top 20, like, greater sins. There's no list, right? All I have is principles derived from the John 19, 11 text and the Matthew 23, 23 text. That's all we have. 
but I think it's enough to at least add some, some support to this position of graded absolutism. And yet there's a third position. The third position, and we'll throw it up on the screen, non-conflicting absolutes. In this third position, it kind of goes the opposite of the first two a lot. It says that in situations in which you find two absolutes conflicting, in reality, they're not conflicting. Non-conflicting absolutes. So when they appear to be conflicting, they're not actually conflicting. They just appear to be that way. Thus, in Rahab's situation, she should have told the truth. And she was wrong not to tell the truth. In fact, they would argue that it was probably a lack of faith for her not to tell the truth. A lack of faith in God. She should have told the truth. They would say it was wrong for her not to, and she should have. She should have told the truth. Just in the same way, many other saints have told the truth on the brink of death. On the brink of death. She should have told the truth. And the fact is, if you say, for non-conflicting absolutes, what, so you're saying that's a lack of faith? She should have told the truth? What about the spies? She should have trusted that God would provide a way for the spies. You tell the truth, and you trust God that somehow he'll handle the situation. And so this position is probably the most critical of Rahab. And honestly, I think, to a certain degree, I think it's probably... Somewhat naive, somewhat unfair. It's easy for us in here today to be like, oh yeah, she should have told the truth. That was definitely an indication of lack of faith. Okay, but we're not in her situation. Where seconds count. Where armed men are there and have the power to seize our lives in a moment, right? We're not there with a gun against our head. Non-conflicting absolutes. In situations where the absolutes seem to be conflicting in reality, they're not. She should have told the truth. She should have trusted God to provide a way. You say, I don't like that position. And maybe you do. I didn't really like that position. If you say, okay, out of all of them, that one, no way. That one is the one I'm definitely not subscribing to. The implications of that statement, there would be no Christian martyrs ever. There would be no Christian martyrs whatsoever if you automatically cross non-conflicting absolutes off. Right? Tell the truth always, trust God. Like Daniel did. Like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego did. We tell the truth. And we let the chips fall where they may because we know the one who deals the deck. Right? You cross out non-conflicting absolutes, there are no martyrs ever. All of these positions, I think, in my opinion, make a good argument. Then, of course, there's also the idea that in certain situations, and this isn't so much biblical, I'll be honest, but we would say in certain situations, sometimes people forfeit the right to know the truth. Yeah. There are certain situations sometimes in which people forfeit to know the truth. Okay, can you maybe think of one of those situations? There's more classroom type setting right now. I'll give you a hint. It's me. Okay, can you think of a situation in which sometimes people forfeit to know the truth? Maybe in the military? So, in certain instances, we can say, at least, that there are certain instances where people forfeit to know the truth. In other words, we don't say, Mr. Assad, listen, um, we're going to be dropping some bombs on you. So, I just, yeah, I just, well, I want to be polite. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, probably the next 24 hours. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, I just, you know, you know how I am. I just want to be honest. Okay. 
I don't care what your political position is in regards to the recent bombing in Syria, but you can understand that's kind of silly, right? In the same way, I mean, think of the spies going to the land. The reason they're spies is because, to some degree or another, the other side has forfeited knowing the truth. That's why they're spied in the first place. Once again, a principle not necessarily clearly taught, but I think there's definitely implications of it. This is what I think. All three of these positions, I'd say there's a mixed verdict. I would say that in certain times, in certain situations, each one of these three could be in play. Each one of these three, I think, in certain times, in certain situations, could be in play. The implications for us is this. Pray. Pray that you never find yourself in a situation that Rahab finds herself in. And if you do, that God gives you the discernment and the wisdom in that moment to act appropriately in accordance with His will. I think that's how we respond to this when we understand the different scenarios and possible ethical implications. Okay? And this is really important that we do this because you can really take this to the far extreme, right? Not just with lying, well, it was okay for Rahab, so it's okay for me, but with sinning in general. I remember one time talking about conflicting absolutes. One guy took it to the extreme that, I kid you not, true story, comes and tells me, yeah, me and my girlfriend were hanging out over Thanksgiving break, and I walked out of the room and she came, came back in. She didn't really have any clothes on, so I was faced with some conflicting absolutes, right? Say no, hurt her feelings, reject her, make her feel bad. Or fornicate, obviously. I'm like, huh, you really think those were uh, conflicting absolutes? But I'm just being honest, right? It's important that we understand this. It's important that we think about this as it pertains to our own life because you really can, you can play fast and loose with this. Well, Rahab did it. I think the other thing to keep in mind as well is at least for the last position as we finish up the examination of it. Rahab is mentioned in the book of James, I think chapter 2, and of course uh, in Hebrews. And in both instances, she is commended for her faith. The line's not brought up. So if it was a lack of faith, as the third position suggests, it's interesting that that's not actually even brought up. She's only ever commended for it. So, once again, I think, bottom line, pray to God that you don't find yourself in a situation that Rahab finds herself in, and pray that if you do, that God gives you the wisdom and discernment in those moments to act accordingly to His will. But there's a little bit more of this text that I want to get to before the end of today, and really it focuses on verse 11. There's so much in verse 11 I want to talk about. It says this, And as soon as we heard it, The report, as soon as we heard it, it referring to what your God did at the Red Sea against Sihon, against Og, the Amorite kings. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God. In the heavens above and on the earth beneath. For the Lord your God, he is God. For the Lord your God. The word she uses, the word that's being used there, the, the Lord, that is a very specific, very personal name. That is the name for Yahweh. They're singing that song earlier, right? For the Lord your God, He is God. She's, she's using the personal name for God in this instance. It's amazing. It's amazing, amazing because you've you got to ask the question, 
as we go back to her story, how does she know? How, how does this woman, who's grown up in this Canaanite system, with Baal and Asherah and Marduk and Ishtar, how does she know this? We don't know. The text doesn't say. But somehow she knows it. And she says, the Lord your God, He's God. Yahweh is God. In effect, Baal is not God. Asher is not God. Morduk is not God. Ishtar is not God. Yahweh is God. In the heavens above and the earth below, it's Him. It's only Him. Man. I mean, we would, we would probably say this is, this is Rahab's come to Jesus moment, okay? Like, this is her conversion Experience. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it doesn't say how she, she, she knew, but she has this come-to-Jesus moment. And I, I, I'm like, how does that happen for a woman who's grown up believing, like, these are our gods, this is how it is. Like, she just makes this decision. And I'm like, there's no way she makes this decision. She makes it. I'm like, how does she make that decision? For someone who's grown up believing things, for someone who's grown up believing things, this is how it is, this is right, man, that's really hard to come to a point in which you say, oh man, maybe, maybe everything I was taught isn't right, or maybe some of the things I, I, I was taught growing up, maybe that's not right. Like, how does that happen? God, that's how it happens, right? You say, oh, she just, that seems so easy, right? She just made this decision, like the song, like, I decided to follow Jesus. Sometimes that song oversimplifies, I think that's fair, it oversimplifies conversion. Like, oh, I just have to make a decision. And so being saved, being a Christian, is more about what you do, more about making a decision than what God does. Because I, I have no idea how, how this Canaanite woman in, in this hospitality industry that she's in comes to this decision apart from God. And, and, and notice where she's at. If this is Rahab's conversion moment, notice where she's at. She's at her place of business, right? In the hospitality industry. She is a Proverbs 7 woman through and through. She is a lady of the night. She is a Canaanite whore. She is. You said, that sounds bad. It is. And notice where God saves her. She's not praying to ask Jesus to come into her heart, guys. Right? She's not praying the sinner's prayer. She's not going to youth camp or summer camp. She's not raising her hand. She's not walking the aisle. She's not repeating any words. She's getting saved in a brothel, in a whorehouse, where men come in and they pay for sex. <laughs> wow. How? How does that happen? God how it happens. And he can do that for this Canaanite woman with a checkered past. He can do it for a kid from Anchorage, Alaska. He can do it for C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you heard his story. I love his story. Gets on a bus, not a Christian. Gets off the bus, a Christian. How does that happen? He was on a bus. I mean, it just goes absolutely against what we call modern evangelism. God saves him, right? Lewis says, you know, I was on the bus. I'm contemplating the things of God and I realized it's all true. Oh, well, Lewis, no one gave the altar call, so I'm not sure if that really counts. I love the story. She gets saved at her place of work. 
She gets saved at her place of work. I love it. And, and, and then we see, I'm reading through Matthew's Gospel. I've been reading through Matthew's Gospel for, for all of 2018. I did Acts for all of 2017, so I'm getting familiar with it. Matthew has the genealogy in, in the opening sequence. Luke does too. Very different. Matthew focuses on Jesus' legal right to be king. Luke focuses on his biological right. Okay? Uh, Matthew does... <clears throat> A descending order, starting with Abraham coming down to Jesus. Luke does the opposite. He does an ascending order, starting with Jesus going all the way back to Adam. In case you're wondering the, the, the nuances between the two genealogy accounts in Matthew and Luke. But in, in Matthew's gospel, who should we find there? You know. You know who I'm going to say. Rahab's there. What's the significance of that, God? That's the significance of that. That Rahab's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King. So wait, 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 hold on. what's the significance? God is the significance. Because only God, the Lord your God, only Yahweh, the one who reigns in heaven and on earth below, only he could do something like that. To take this Canaanite prostitute and do a miracle in her life. And that should give hope to every single one of you who has unsaved friends and family members. That should give you a lot of hope, a lot of encouragement to see Rahab's story, but that's exactly, exactly what, what happens here. Exactly what happens here. And then something interesting happens. <clears throat> We're going to go to verse 12 to 14. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord. So Rahab speaking, speaking of the spies. Swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, <clears throat> Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. <coughs> There's one problem with this agreement that they just made with her. And the problem is Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 to 5. The problem is Deuteronomy chapter 20, 16 to 18. The problem is that under no circumstances whatsoever were the Israelites to enter into any sort of promise, any sort of arrangement, any sort of agreement with the Canaanites. None. In fact, spoiler alert, in chapter 9, they're going to get their behinds handed to them because they defied God's instructions. Quick moral of the story, if God gives really explicit instructions, we really want to do that. Back to the story. Israel is expressly forbidden to enter into agreements, enter into arrangements with the Canaanites. This should not be happening. But with one crucial difference. And the crucial difference is in verse 11. For the Lord your God, Yahweh, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. As one commentator notes, she essentially becomes an Israelite, so to speak, at this point. And if you notice, prior to her confession of faith, 
Prior to her confession of faith, the spies show no intention of entering into an agreement. Okay, when they get word that the king's men are coming, they don't say, okay, we'll make you a quick deal, okay? Listen to us, real quick, real quick. They're coming for us? Okay. You save our lives, you do whatever you have to do, and we'll make this agreement. They don't do that. You think they would do that. They don't. They're prepared, as far as we can tell, they're prepared to be captured and killed. That's how serious the instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 20 are in this regards. It's only after Rahab's confession of faith that they're open to this arrangement whatsoever. That's the difference. She was, in effect, no longer a Canaanite. Here's the thing. Going back to the Abrahamic covenant, which is really part one of this story and the promise that, that God makes to Abraham. That, listen, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many people, more numerous than the stars, more numerous than, than the sand. And his descendants are going to be made up not just of ethnic Israel, but from every tribe, every nation, every lingua, uh, linguistic background, right? Everyone will be his people. And we see the most unlikely, something like Rahab in the genealogy, how God, 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 because, because of who he is. That's how. And so we look at this, and I'll use this word because I know it'll get your attention. The gospel is inclusive. The gospel is inclusive. It's inclusive. So long as you come to Jesus on his terms. So long as you come to Jesus on his terms, yes. So we're so used to saying, no, 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 the gospel is, is exclusive, right? But in the same sense, it is inclusive if we will bow the knee to him. If we will bow the knee to him, not just embrace him as Savior. So many people want to embrace him as Savior. Right? So many people want a Savior, okay? And for them, all that means is a get-out-of-jail-free card. They just don't want hell. They don't want to embrace him as Lord, so they don't. They only want a Savior. But the understanding is, if he's Lord, you can't tell him no. You can't pick and choose when you want to obey him and how you want to obey him. So the gospel, yes, it's inclusive. If we come, if we come to him, like Rahab comes to him, Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, they're literally spiritually bankrupt. That's what the statement means. The poor in spirit, they're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are them, right? Because they have nothing. They've got nothing to give. They've got nothing to, to leverage against their position as guilty before the king. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because they come. Not on their terms. Not with their conditions. They come. And so yeah, the gospel's inclusive if we come to him. If we come, the gospel is inclusive. I love the story of Rahab. I love how she meets the Lord. Reminds me of one of my favorite Matt Chandler quotes. God doesn't save us, guys, because we give him permission to. If you're a Christian in here, it's not because you you gave God permission to save you. That's not what happened. Chandler says, God doesn't save us because we give him permission. He saves us because he's God. Understand that. 
You can do that for C.S. Lewis, getting on a bus, a non-Christian, getting off a bus, a Christian, like it just clicks, he realizes it's true. How? It's not because he's a genius. You can do that for a kid growing up in Anchorage, Alaska. He can do that for a Canaanite whore at her place of work. That's what I want you to see. That's what I want you to see, how big God is. To see Rahab's Confession as more than just words on the page. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. It's Him, it's only Him. We see the goodness of God, really, the goodness of God in this story. We see His continued faithfulness to His people and not just his people but in including Rahab here not just because not just because of his inclusiveness but also because of his mercy that despite her lying her past her sin and the scriptures remind us of this all the time right have you not heard that it was said but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us while she is still a Canaanite prostitute or wherever you are, or your friends, or the people that you care about. You care about your unsaved friends? You should pray for them. But you should hopefully, I think, after today, be that much more hopeful that God can save them in lieu of the story of Rahab. The greatness of God is on full display. So no one better walk out of here with a smaller view of God, not after her story. God, we love you. And we thank you for who you are, for what you've done, for what you are doing. I thank you for saving us, for rescuing us, for changing us. I thank you, God, that the gospel is inclusive for all those who will come and bow the knee to you, the King, the only King. I thank you for your faithfulness, God, that's on display in this story. Lord, help us to see a little bit bigger glimpse of who you are. In your name we pray, amen.